This is Barry Zalma, Zalma on Insurance. Today, it's time to speak about evaluation of third-party liability claims, especially when there are bad facts and serious injuries. Some lawsuits are based on clear liability and terrible facts and injuries that compel the parties involved to settle the case as quickly as possible. In such cases, defending and indemnifying the insured is liable to be costly and could easily exceed the available policy limits. If the adjuster's reaction to the fact pattern is disbelief or horror, and his or her first impulse is to trade the claim to another adjuster, these are signs that the case must be settled quickly. Consider one case uh, in my personal history where a young girl was playing on the beach at a lake where a uh, boat race was going on. And one of the boats lost control, came up on the beach, and literally cut the little girl in half. During the deposition of the mother, hardened, cold-blooded, experienced lawyers broke down crying. It didn't matter whether the boat operator was liable or negligent. It only mattered that this little girl was killed while her mother watched, and she had to chase half the child's body across the beach while the other half stayed under the boat. These are bad facts and bad injuries, and they always get more expensive with time. These cases should not be aggressively defended but should rather be handled with empathy and generosity so that they can be resolved within the limits available from the insured's policy if it is at all adequate or even close to being adequate. The worst of all cases could also be an insured who admits he fell asleep at the wheel, crossed over the double line, and an island and struck a tiny Ford Escape head-on and rendered a paraplegic, a 40-year-old widower father of four minor children, all of whom suffered from Down syndrome with needed constant care, and insured with only a policy limit of $500,000 is simply inadequate to recompense the children for the loss of their father. The insured has a policy, and it is up to the insurer to find some way to resolve the claim. A release on behalf of the insured would be useful, but the adjuster should not make the injured file suit before paying the limit, even if it must be paid without condition, because insurers act for their insureds 
were usually incapable of protecting themselves, courts in most jurisdictions impose a duty on the insurer greater than that imposed on the average citizen, and slightly less than that imposed on a fiduciary. A fiduciary is a person or organization that acts on behalf of another person or persons to manage assets. Essentially, a fiduciary owes to that other entity the duties of good faith and trust. The highest legal duty of one party to another, being a fiduciary, requires being bound ethically to act in the other's best interest. A fiduciary duty arises when one party has a high degree of control over the property or the subject matter of another, or when the benefiting party places a high level of trust and confidence in the fiduciary to look out for the beneficiary's best interest. Additionally, when one party relies on another's higher degree of expertise in an area, a fiduciary duty may arise. Many decisions have concluded that the mere presence of an insurance contract does not automatically give rise to a fiduciary relationship. Other elements of control or trust must enter into the relationship before a fiduciary duty will be imposed. The extent of the insurer's duties to the insured are limited to those defined by the insurance contract. The relationship between insured and insurer is not fiduciary in nature. Traditionally, the relationship between insurer and insured has been one based solely upon contract. While there are circumstances, particularly when dealing with third-party claims, in which fiduciary-like duties, not fiduciary duties, but fiduciary-like duties, may be placed on the insurer to benefit the insured. Such situations do not arise in first-party disputes because the insurer and the insured are working together as contractees. Both parties have a responsibility to perform duties as spelled out by the contract itself and not because of any other special relationship. While an insurer is required to deal with the insured in good faith and deal fairly concerning every aspect of the contract, good faith and fair dealing is not enough to place the broad and substantial duties of a true fiduciary upon the insurer. A fiduciary duty is one of utmost care and is usually imposed on persons in positions of great trust, such as trustees, executors, conservators, and others who are in control of the property of those unable to take care of themselves. Courts impose an extremely high duty of care on a fiduciary. Although insurers and adjusters are not fiduciaries, and the duty owed by an insurer and its adjusters 
is something less than that owed by a fiduciary if the adjuster treats the insured as if the insured and the insurer were actually involved in a fiduciary relationship the claim will never go wrong it should be sufficient for the adjuster to treat the insured with the utmost good faith which is a very high bar to meet any failure to do so will be considered a breach of duty sufficient to assess damages against the insurer. California courts have clearly recognized on a number of occasions that the relationship between an insurer and an insured encompasses a number of aspects of a fiduciary relationship. Early cases recognize that the relationship is fiduciary in nature. Later California cases have even more strongly suggested elements of a fiduciary duty in this relationship. For example, in Gibson versus Government Employees, a 1984 decision of the California Court of Appeal, the court, although recognizing that the California Supreme Court had never ruled on the issue, assume that the relationship between an insurer and an insured was a fiduciary one. Despite the seeming trend of cases in California to analogize the insurer-insured relationship to a fiduciary relationship, the cases which have directly addressed this point have held that this relationship does not produce a fiduciary duty. In Henry v. Associated Indemnity, a 1990s decision of the California Court of Appeal, it held that there was no fiduciary duty between an insurer and an insured. The plaintiffs urged that Henry should not be controlling because it ignored opposite California Supreme Court authority, but this is not true. Failure to consider the duty to the insured in a claim evaluation will always invariably lead to trouble. If the known facts, including medical information, indicate clearly that the claim is defensible, there is no point in initiating settlement discussions. If, as investigation and discovery continue, there is clearly a question of liability, the adjuster may find it necessary to re-evaluate the decision not to settle. However, if there is a question regarding the extent of the injuries at the early stages of a claims investigation, settlement discussions should be started by the claimant or his or her attorney, not by the insured, the adjuster, or defense counsel. When all the evidence is against the claimant, initiating settlement negotiations will not serve the best interests of the insured. If possible, the adjuster should consider the settlement techniques or propensities of counsel for the claimant. There may be facts, law, comparative fault, or other factors that can be emphasized 
in order to persuade the claimant and claimant's counsel to settle early. If an early settlement effort is likely to be taken as weakness, however, be silent. If an early settlement effort has proved successful in the past with that plaintiff's attorney, then it is prudent to pursue one. The worst that can happen is you get no settlement. The settlement of a bodily injury claim requires more than facts and law. It requires the experience with the jurisdiction and counsel and an ability to compromise to meet the needs of the case. If the case is not settled, some bad law may potentially be established. Bad case law has almost always resulted from cases that should have been settled or were not because someone was stubborn or unthinking. One example is the California Supreme Court decision in White v. Western Title that was decided in 1985 on the last day that three members of the Supreme Court, including the Chief Justice, were to sit after being voted out of office. A dispute over a $20,000 claim resulted in a bad-faith suit after litigation between the insurer and the insured had begun by a declaratory relief action. The insurer thought it was improper to admit evidence of its conduct. It was forced into an adversary position with its insured. The insurer lost a trial and appealed the $20,000 judgment to the Supreme Court of California. As a result, in California, records of settlement negotiations cannot be placed in evidence in any case, except if that case is against an insurer and the evidence is used to prove the bad faith of the insurer rather than any logical, legal, or factual issue in the case. The decision has been roundly criticized. But it is the law in California, because a stubborn insurer insisted on continuing through the courts with a case that could easily have been settled for $20,000. Ohio, in a not officially reported case called California Motorist v. Saeed, a 1990 decision held that generally evidence of settlement offers are inadmissible to prove liability for a claim. However, evidence of the breach of an insurer's duty to exercise good faith occurring after the commencement of an action is admissible. More particularly, evidence of settlement offers on an insured's injury claim made following the commencement of litigation in a bad faith action is admissible on the issue of bad faith. Of course, the converse is also true. In Royal Globe v. Superior Court, a 1979 decision of the California Supreme Court, that court authorized third-party plaintiffs to sue insurers for violation of the Fair Claims Practices Act, even though the claimant had no relationship with the insurer. That would never have been reversed 
if Fireman's Fund had not stubbornly refused to settle the claim. Eventually, in Murati Shalal versus Fireman's Fund, recognizing the abuses of the Royal Globe decision, held that only the State Department of Insurance could enforce the Fair Claims Practices Statute and that no one could bring a civil action based on that statute. The decision to go forward with an appeal on a coverage issue must be made carefully with the advice of experienced coverage and appellate counsel. In some cases, there may be a legal principle involved that needs to be resolved so that precedent can be established. Occasionally, this is a legitimate consideration to require taking a case to trial rather than to settle. The decision to move forward, to set precedent, should be tempered with the realization that the insurer may face the possibility of Federal Rule 11 sanctions if the case is lost, or an appellate decision directly the opposite of that desired by the insurer. Many states have enacted similar rules allowing sanctions to be imposed against parties who bring what the court believes to be a frivolous motion or defense. Bad facts usually result in bad law, or more accurately, unreasonable facts will eventually and usually result in law that is not to the liking of the person appealing. It is improper to take a chance on the insured facing an uninsured loss just to give the insurer the opportunity to create a legal precedent favorable to the insurer. The fact that more trial judgments are affirmed than are reversed should temper the desire to file an appeal. An insurer should never experiment. If there is any potential that the insured could incur an uninsured loss, unless the insurer is willing to guarantee payment of any judgment, regardless of the policy's policy limits. Otherwise, the insurer will probably be found in breach of the duty of good faith if an attempt is made to change a law that will benefit the insurer over its entire book of business and if it results in an adverse judgment against the insured in excess of policy limits. If the insurer wants to make a precedent, it should enter into a written agreement with the insured to take the case to trial and promise the insured that it will indemnify him or her, regardless of the verdict, whether within policy limits or not, and will reimburse all of his or her expenses. This video was adapted from my book, Selma on Insurance Claims, Part 107, Third Edition, which is being published as I speak into this video. If you found the video to be interesting or useful, please pass it on to your colleagues. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, Click on the like button and the rumble button as you do. And please subscribe to my blog and my Substack publications.
Thank you for your attention.